I'm Heidi Harris. Welcome to the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do this three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You can subscribe at iTunes or check them out at HeidiHarris.com. You can also catch my live weekday show at 6.70 a.m. in Las Vegas, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. weekdays. This is going to be an interesting podcast because I had a conversation with a man many of you may know. His name is Touré. He's a cultural critic, an author, a TV host, a prolific tweeter, <laughs> and he wrote a column that caught my attention. So he and I sat down for a phone interview and pretty much tried to solve all the problems of race relations in America. I'm going to break this up into segments, and I hope you enjoy it. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about a column written by a man by to- named Torre. Many of you may have read his thing. You've seen him on TV. He's doing a podcast now. He's been on MSNBC for years. Uh, it's called The Torre Show. It's his new podcast. But he's written a lot of things criticizing the culture, talking about the culture, books, articles, and whatnot. And I saw an article he wrote the other day, and he was talking about how white people have a superpower. In other words, if they call the police, they can be automatically believed. And I talked about it on my show, talked about it on the podcast, and I thought, you know what? He's got some points, and to automatically dismiss them, to me, is intellectually dishonest. Torre has agreed to join me on the Heidi Harris Show podcast. So great to talk to you, sir. Nice to talk to you. So what caused you to write this particular column about how white people have this superpower that if they call the police, no matter what you're wearing, you're automatically believed? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was the the, uh, the Jennifer Schulte incident in Oakland, which followed right after the Starbucks incident. And there were one or two other incidents as well that just happened all right in a row where white people were calling police on black people who were not actually committing a crime and I, you know and i remember sitting out in my car and i was taking a, i had a business call and i had just sprained my ankle so i was taking a long time getting out of the car and then hanging around the car afterward and it was not my neighborhood it's my cousin's neighborhood but maybe not everybody has seen me before so i'm thinking you know, what if one of these white people around here, you know, decides, oh, he looks suspicious to me, I'm going to call the police. And I really felt afraid. And I'm like, anybody walking by or seeing me out of a window could go, hmm, he's been sitting in the car for 10 minutes. Uh, maybe he's doing a drug deal. I'm going to call the police. <laughs> and, you know, that could really happen. And it, it did not happen to me that day, but I felt that fear and that led me to say, you know, let me, let me, you know, let me write this, uh, just, just to try to understand. I, you know, I, I, I started the piece saying, Dear White People, and I usually try to not write to white people. I try to not have a white-centric uh, mode of discussion, but that one felt really important. That's interesting, because when you say all blank are blank, and I know you're not somebody who does that normally, anytime you say all blank are blank, we all know that's ridiculous. But I did think that it was a good point that you made, because let's say the cops were to appear, you were to be called, the first thing the police are going to do is separate you from the other people who called, and you feel as if they're going to automatically believe the white person over you, even if you're wearing a suit, even if you've got a briefcase in your hand, you just feel as if the cops automatically give those people more credit. Yeah, I mean, they the cops seem to quite often give white people the benefit of the doubt. Um, and one thing I talked about a couple weeks ago when we were really dealing with the Starbucks situation, and the story that, that we, you and I started talking about, you know, some people say, you know, well, how come the black people aren't more, you know, peace, 
Bowl or what have you. And there's plenty of plenty of of, of, of examples of the white the black people being super peaceful and docile when the cops come and still bad things happen. But you know, if I'm not doing anything and I'm you know living in a law-abiding way and you know part of society, and then the cops show up because I was because I fell asleep or because I was sitting in Starbucks for two minutes or whatever it is, um, and not breaking the law at all, I might be really upset. I might be really offended. I might feel like, why do I have to justify my existence to you, officer? Because I'm not doing anything wrong here. And you might be a little more ornery, uh, you know, in that situation, a little less patient. Because it's kind of like, why are you even here? Um, and, you know, you know, probably so that that kind of, to me, speaks to how some people are feeling in these moments that you're seeing. But, you know, some of the stuff you talked about on your show of like this notion of like, if you're just, you know, yes, sir, and no, sir, as a black person, that alone is not necessarily going to get you through um, some interaction with police. No, it might not. We're speaking with author and cultural critic Torre. I would agree that it's not always going to be the case. And I mentioned that I had a police officer years ago go berserk on me, start screaming at me in traffic because he'd pulled me over. He'd had plenty of time to run my plates. I pulled into a parking lot. He didn't like me doing that instead of on the side of the road because I, I didn't want to pull on the side of the road because it would have blocked traffic. But he was all upset about that, screaming and yelling, acting like a maniac. I've been pulled over plenty of times, Torre. Never been yelled at like that. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, it's up to me to calm this guy down because he's going to shoot me if I, if I don't watch it. And I literally, have you ever been arrested? No, sir. And I'm literally hanging my hands out of the window of the car to calm him down because he was so out of line. But the point I'm making is I did that. And many times when you hear or see uh, these altercations that happen between white cops and black people, and of course with white people it happens too, their attitude is, why'd you pull me over? They get nasty sometimes, and then it escalates from there, where if you just sit there, turn your dome light on if it's at night, keep your hands where they're supposed to be, then things will be calmed down because you you know this, anybody knows this, when a cop pulls somebody over, they have no idea who you are, regardless of what your license plates say. They don't know who they're meeting. They're walking up. Lots of cops get killed in these kind of situations. So to me, I feel as a citizen, I have an obligation to make the cop feel comfortable and safe when he or she pulls me over. Would you think that's correct? Um, you know, I, I think that the way that things play out we have to mollify the officers because they have a very dangerous and difficult job. And I do have respect for how dangerous policing is. Um, I think it's a bit crazy to say that we have to mollify our government when it comes to check on us, right? That sounds a little backwards. The government is supposed to work for us and support us. And in these moments, the government we are, it's just expected, it's just accepted that we should be afraid of our government in these moments. Um, I don't know about being afraid. I just think it's a simple matter of respect when an officer pulls you over for most most of the time. There's going to be a reason for it. And to play this game like, oh, I don't know why, you know, why'd you pull me over when I know why I was speeding or whatever. Uh, I think just to sit there and treat them with respect, the same respect you'd want them to treat you with. I think if that happened 99.99% of the time, we'd have no problem. Well, I mean, that, you know, I mean, history and the mountain of video that we now have belies that. I mean, did you see the Philando Castile stop just as one example? I mean, 
you know, he was very polite. He was very calm. He, you know, carefully explained to the officer, I am a licensed firearm holder. He's sitting there with his wife and his baby, and the officer starts firing at him in seconds. You know, I mean, he, you know, this sort of notion that politeness and uh, sort of mollifying the officer will get the black person, you know, whatever, you know, or whatever. Or the white person, or the white person. Well, no, but I mean, like, we are treated differently. But, how, those, but, how, but here's the thing, Torrey, how do you know that? Because you're a black person. I don't know how you're treated at every car stop. You don't know how I'm treated. It's automatic assumption that white people are always treated better at a, at a car stop that a black person and black people are always treated like garbage is not, that's not fair. You don't know, you don't live in my no, world. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, obviously the always makes it a bit too much, but I've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different police officers, black and white, uh, who clearly confirm there's no doubt that the way that white people and black people are treated in traffic stops and in their, in their neighborhoods is vastly different. Um, we see that over and over and over. And the problem is not really white people. It's not really what police are doing to us in general. It's really, for the most part, these moments of violence are being visited on black bodies, and partly because it's stemming from a bias that white and black officers are bringing to black people. Um, this is how the systemic uh, sort of bias that happens, that affects all of us, visits our bodies in a direct, literal way, that when the officer comes up to me, he's coming up with also with all these other, all this other baggage about black men that he's not walking up to your car with. And you had that moment with that officer that sounds horrific. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm not him, so I don't know what was inside of him to make that happen. He was showing um, off for a ride along he had in the car with them. That's what happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, that sounds pathetic. He's trading, you know, the the respect of. You said on your show that the ride along was a, was a woman, right? Yeah, he had a woman on a ride along. He was a short guy, you know, short man syndrome or whatnot, and trying to be a tough guy and scream and yell at me. I mean, you know, it's frustrating. I, I should have filed a complaint, and I didn't. More, I should have done that. Perhaps you should have, but I mean, like, what we need more of is uh, police de-escalation. Right. The problem is not how we treat our officers who we pay for, who are supposed to be protecting and serving us. Uh, the problem is not how we treat them. It's how they treat us. And they need to be uh, have more use of force policies that are clear. They need to have more de-escalation of violence. Um, I mean, you know, in my experience, when the cops show up, generally everything gets worse. You know, it does not it is not a path for everything to get better. You know, just the general notion that a lot of white people have of like, well, let's just call the police and settle this out. Like, well, that doesn't mean that justice is going to arrive along with them. An interesting perspective for sure. Here's what he had to say about riots in neighborhoods when I asked him about it. Would you agree that when the press shows up for the riots that it makes it worse? In other words, most black people are not out rioting. And the press shows up and people start torching cars and, uh, you know, rioting and, and knocking windows open in businesses and things like that. Most black people are home in their house with their families not doing this. But the press goes out and encourages folks to act like that. And I think that gives a false perception that a bunch of black people are acting like maniacs because that's not true. Uh, well, I'm not entirely 
sure what you're responding to. Are you talking about the unrest that you see in Ferguson right after a right. Michael Brown? It, any of those killed, times. Or, the, or, the, or a larger Black Lives Matter rally? Or are you talk, but we're not talking about the violence that happened in Charlottesville and other places? Like, no, yeah. Is, Let's back up a little bit. I'll are, redo that part. What are we referring to? So, so I would think that the press, when they show up at riots like Ferguson, places like that, wherever there's a riot, where there's an, I'm not talking about a protest where people are walking. I'm talking about a riot. When those kind of things are happening, it seems to me that the press is fanning the flames of the unrest because they show up, and if they turned their cameras off and didn't give these people publicity, white or black people who are protesting, by the way, if they didn't give them publicity, then they would all go home. But a lot of people show up just looking for a party, and there's this perception that all black people in the case of the blacker neighborhoods and obviously white people too but this perception i think the media perpetuates of black people acting you know in in bad ways and i, I mean, don't think it's fair Heidi, you know within i mean i i would push back on most of what you said there and i think that deep down in there there's a distrust of their feelings right you're saying they're showing up for a party they're showing up for media they're showing out to show off, I'm not sure what. These are people, including myself, who have been through decades and generations of police violence in, in particular, to say nothing of other sorts of violence that we've had to deal with with white supremacy, but just, just generations of policing violence that happened to us, to our families, to others in our generation. And when you see a moment like Michael Brown, and there's an uprising, and there's a there's an explosion of anger. This is not performative. This is not uh, to show off to others. This is a genuine, deep, uh, ex authentic expression of the soul deep anger of being policed in this violent, aggressive uh, way for generations to say nothing of you know, years and years of a specific individual dealing with it, and also his father, his grandfather, his grandmother, his aunts, his uncles dealing with it, his friends. I mean, we as black people have lived with a deep fear of the police for generations. So when you see an explosion in, you know, Newark or Watts in the 60s or in, in uh, Compton in the 80s or in uh, Ferguson, you know, in the, uh, the teens, um, you know, Cincinnati and the double O's. I mean, there's a reason why these things are happening. Be yeah, and it's not to show off for media. Uh, it's because there's a deep anger and there's not an apparatus that is dealing with it. What, what, what fundamental steps are we taking toward dealing with police violence in America. Well, it seems to me that the, the, way, body to, cameras? the way to approach it, I would, well, that helps, but I think the way to approach it is legislatively. I mean, whether you're, and I, by the way, I said the same thing about the Bundy Ranch, you know, those crazies out there, okay? You don't have the right to take the law into your own hands and not pay the government because you don't feel like it. I was very much against what they were doing. And there are a lot of folks who think I was, you know, I've lost my Republican roots. Well, it's not a Republican issue. They don't pay their bills. They want to be freeloaders. So if you have a problem, then you go to court or you try to get better people on the police department or you do something 
something from a legislative standpoint. I don't think torching houses or torching businesses in your own neighborhood is going to help anybody accomplish anything. And I do think to having the press there giving these folks attention makes it worse. It fans the flames because most people in Ferguson weren't out there rioting. They were home with their families. And so you're and most I mean, black you know, people I'm talking about. There's, you know, I mean, quite often it's been said the riot is the voice of the voiceless. And I would push back on using that word and use a word more like uprising. But even still, the action that we're talking about is response of people who feel and are voiceless. Yeah, but, doc, but here's the thing, Torrey. Dr. King would not have been okay with people torching neighborhoods and destroying businesses in their very neighborhoods. The people, this is why people don't want to start businesses in those neighborhoods. They get destroyed. Dr. King would not have been okay with that, and he accomplished a great deal during his life. I, I mean, I, I don't think that fear of an occasional uprising is why you see fewer businesses in areas where they, people have been systematically placed to be segregated, where they generally have less money. Businesses are, uh, and banks are not providing loans at the same rate to enter those sort of neighborhoods. So I think there's a lot of reasons why you see business disparity that have nothing to do with the, like, you know, a Haley's Comet, like, fear of, like, maybe there will be an uprising in this community at some point in the next 20, 30 years. Um, but, you know, I... I I find generally the use of Dr. King in this sort of a way to be, uh, you know, a, a little uncomfortable. I mean, you know, I, I don't know exactly what King would say if he were here today. I don't know what he would say. I, I know that quite often in American history, that sort of property damage has led to change, has made people stand up and pay attention. And I'm not saying that we should be doing that, um, but it has it has made a difference, and it can get people's attention. Uh, and you know, I mean, quite often, you know, King's methods have a lot of uh, validity and a lot of importance. But so did Malcolm X's. Well, all righty then. On Friday, join me for a little more of my conversation with Touré. You know what? Like I said, it's always interesting to hear how the other side sees things because, as I mentioned, when he wrote his column, there's just no way that you can completely dismiss everything he said in it because I don't live in his world. He doesn't live in my world. And I may not agree with him, but I did want you to hear what he has to say. So tune in Friday for a little more of my conversation with Toure. And don't forget to pick up my book, Don't Pat Me on the Head, is the title. It's at Amazon. You can get it in a book form or on Kindle. And don't forget to join me for my weekday show, live from the Las Vegas Strip, 670 AM, KMZQ. The show is on 9 AM to 10 AM, Monday through Friday. And the link there, if you want to listen live to it, is at HeidiHarris.com. Until we meet again, remember, you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell.